So if you watched our uh, timeline chalkboard um, of this Ukrainian scandal, you saw several things that stuck out. Uh, you saw that a woman named Chalupa, her last name Chalupa, um, was probably the first person to say Russia's involved. Um, and she did this long before anybody else. She also was uh, working with the Ukrainian embassy to get dirt on Donald Trump. She was also working uh, with Michael Isikoff uh, from Yahoo News. And uh, she was also working at the same time that the Steele dossier was being compiled. Now, they just say she's a soccer mom. But we had somebody on last night that worked at the Ukrainian embassy who she introduced herself to, and then later the Ukrainian ambassador also said she is an operative for the DNC, and we have to work with her because after the election, they'll be very helpful uh, to us. We want to make sure that we have this as a strong relationship. The DNC, because they were helping Hillary Clinton. They thought Hillary Clinton would be, would be um, uh, uh, voted in, and it turned around. Now, there's also something else. There's also that story about Joe Biden uh, firing the really, really dirty prosecutor general. Well, there's a guy who plays a role in both of those. He was there and he witnessed both of them. He's a Ukrainian. Uh, Andre, what's his last name? Uh, Jason Teloshenko. Teloshenko. Andre Teloshenko. I talked to him yesterday. Uh, he was over in Europe, and I talked to him for about 90 minutes just doing some basic questioning uh, about what do you know, what do we have right, what do we have wrong, where should we be looking, what what happened with you. I want to show you uh, three three clips here of, of Andre talking about how Shokin, the guy that uh, Joe Biden got fired, was not corrupt, according to him. Now, he worked for Shokin, but he left Shokin's employ in about, what, four months or five months in because he disagreed with his policies and what he wanted to focus on. But he he didn't quit because of corruption or being dirty or anything else. So he says Shokin was not corrupt. The reason why he was fired is because the Soros NGO was protesting and there was pressure from Soros to get Shokin removed. Listen to what he said. I want to make sure I understand this because this is something that the American media will never cover. And that is you say that it was from day one, the George Soros organization that was that wanted him out. Why would they want him? Why would they want him out? That was the question we were asking them. We came out to the protesters. I was the one who actually coordinated communication with the protesters on his behalf, on the prosecutor general's behalf, asking, look, guys, what happened? What is the story behind your protest? We're ready to cooperate. Let's go in. We'll show you what, what's needed. Let's get involved together. You are the NGOs. You're a of organizations. Let's cooperate together and fight corruption. We, we invited them to the prosecutor's office, and they still, after that, even got worse. 
and protesting all over Facebook, all over physical protests every day by the prosecutor's office, and nobody knew at the time what was they doing, what was their agenda. But their agenda was at the end, as we see today, is the Burisma investigation against uh, Burisma money laundering money and Hunter Biden being involved in it. That's the main thing we see today as their narrative, because at that time, we didn't understand what their narrative was. Okay, let me bring in uh, Jason Buttrill, who is our uh, chief researcher. He is a guy who was former military intelligence and has been tracking this story down. The significance of what he just said. That's amazing. Um, well, I mean, it completely dismantles a lot of what the Obama administration was saying about uh, the entire thing with Shokin. Um, we, we found in our own research uh, that pretty much basically what he's saying as well. We found in our research that Shokin was kind of like confused. He was like, you didn't, and this was in a uh, European court, that he had said, you guys haven't brought any charges against me. Like, you didn't even give any examples of how I'm corrupt. Please tell me how I'm corrupt. And they never gave it. They were just like, sorry, you're gone. And so it was so. So it was it was the NGO on the ground, the Soros-sponsored NGO, that was saying that Shokin was corrupt it's it's kind of like now where, you know, Donald Trump did something with Russia. What? What did he do? But they didn't even do an investigation. It was the it was the NGO that was on the ground with Soros money that were creating this image that he was corrupt. Once he was fired, he was fired. And, and our guest said pretty clearly uh, fired for Burisma, not for corruption, fired for Burisma. They never brought any charges. They never in, did any investigation whatsoever of Shokin. They they never did anything except cut him loose. How fascinating is this? Because we've talked about top-down, bottom-up strategies. This is top-down from the Obama administration going bottom-up, right to the right to the source in the streets. Street protests. Like, that, 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 that was amazing right there where he just said, I don't think that's even been released, is they wanted to. This is the first time I think we're hearing this. They wanted to work. Shokin's office wanted to work with this NGO. I'm like, sure, this is Soros funded, whatever. Look, let's help each other out here. Let's both fight corruption is what he was saying. That right. was their offer. But they, but uh, the NGO doubled down and instead of working with them, took to the streets and started protesting. Absolutely amazing. Okay, so the other thing, it was very, very clear and um, and almost sad when you looked at it from the Ukrainian point of view, which he did, he's a Ukrainian. Uh, he lived here in the United States for a while. So he, you know, understands the United States, understands how things work here, but is Ukrainian. And he talked about how he just, you know, his country didn't want to be ruled by the Soviet Union and it didn't want to be ruled by the United States. It wants its own independence. And the United States came in and said, you're going to play ball our way. And he said they dictated everything that we did. And he talked about how there was this meeting that is in our timeline that Barack Obama set up at the White House. And he asked the, you know, the National Anti-Corruption Bureau, they call it uh, NABU, um, but it was something that the White House dictated. You have to set this bureau up. And it's an anti-corruption bureau. What you find out later in the timeline is that the head of the anti-corruption bureau goes to court and 
and is convicted of interfering in our election. So it was, again, something that the White House dictated to them. This is what you're going to prosecute. This is what you're not going to prosecute. We told you that he brought in, Obama brought in all of these prosecutors, and it wasn't for what they thought. Well, this is the guy who set that meeting up with the White House. And listen to what he says about that meeting. Were you present or involved in in that meeting being set up, and were you there when, when it happened? Um, yes, I was. I was uh, asked to help organize uh, that meeting also because it was part of my duty to the embassy, and it was as being involved in the prosecutor's office in Ukraine before the ambassador asked me to be involved in that meeting. But the interesting thing is, it was I was involved in two meetings out of a week long of meetings with the NABU, the, the Corruption Bureau of Ukraine, and the uh, Frame the Corruption Bureau of Ukraine. And then I was blocked from attending any other meeting, which was basically a shock for the embassy. And this never happened before. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Actually happened. I didn't. I didn't understand. I, I didn't. I didn't hear what you said. It was a shock. You were also involved in what? I was I wasn't I was in that meeting. I was I was helped to organize that meeting, but then after because they were not only in this meeting in the White House, they had numerous meetings within the FBI and DOJ. Right. They're talking about corruption as they saw in Ukraine. But I was blocked the Ukrainian embassy in Washington was blocked from attending any of those other meetings after the first meeting with the White House. So the what he said here, in case you didn't follow it, is he was the guy that the Obama administration reached out to the embassy and said, hey, we want to have a anti-corruption meeting with the DOJ. We'll have it at the White House, and then we'll have some more additional meetings uh, with the DOJ later in the day, and it'll go for a week. And so this is common. They do these kinds of things all the time. So they brought everybody in. But what was not common was he is the official representative of the embassy, um, the ambassador is the is the person that is representing the president of Ukraine and the country, and they always attend these meetings. That is the political arm to make sure that everything is on the up and up. Well, he was invited to, and so was the ambassador to the White House meeting. But when it came to the DOJ, without any discussion at all, they banned all people from the embassy from going in. And the reason why this is important is because this is where, when they came out, people told him, we were told to basically spy on Donald Trump. Significance of this audio. This, this, this is amazing to me because this meeting, as described in, in, in work from like people like John Solomon, was originally supposed to be like, hey, let's just get together, shake hands, and you know, w- learn about how we can work with one another. Mm-hmm. And that was that was what the Ukrainians thought when they walked in. They were looking for a partnership. But what they found out later, after during these two secret meetings, allegedly, was that it had nothing at all to do with uh, working with each other. They wanted this to be secret. They wanted this part to be clandestine. And this had everything to do with trying to influence the 2016 election. We'll tell you how that happened here with more audio in just a second. Also, Mike Rowe is coming up in just a moment. All right, so I asked him point blank, 
Was the Obama administration directing the Ukrainians to get dirt on the Trump campaign? I want you to listen to what he says here. And Mr. Sipnik, I was uh, in contact with him prior for a couple of years, and he used to just brag about how he goes to the U.S. Embassy in Kiev and reports to them twice a week on what was going on and takes orders from them. And he talks about it publicly, and I think there's also reporting that are online, but he used to do this to everybody. He just bragged about how he's in bed with basically the U.S. Embassy in Kiev. And they're telling him what to do. So that's uh, not a secret here in Ukraine, but nobody's reporting about this in the U.S. Okay, so now Sitnik, so you know, this is the audio tape. Remember we played, if we have a piece of it, we played that audio tape um, on the uh, TV show to show you what what sent someone to jail uh, or got them convicted uh, for tampering in U.S. elections. Um, it was a secret audio tape, and it was it was Sitnik's voice on it. Now, who is Sitnik? Sitnik is the guy who is the head of the National Anti-Corruption Bureau that the Obama administration insisted that they set up with the United States. Who was also at the meeting that we just talked about yes. in D.C. Uh, it is, it's quite remarkable uh, how much is being left on the table and how much the media is just dismissing. Now, I can't vouch for this guy. I can tell you that his his reporting or his recollection and his testimony um, syncs up with a lot that we already knew. He he also and are we going to play this tonight on TV? Do you know uh, we're going to play any of the Chalupa stuff? Yeah, there's so much stuff we're looking at putting in tonight that you have to listen on Saturday because there's so much there. But we're picking out two things today to talk about on TV. Chalupa is one of the big ones. Okay, so this is we've already talked about Chalupa. If you're missing the five o'clock show, you miss one. You miss a lot. Um, This is critical that you understand uh, because it is going to come down to uh, a fight in the end on do you impeach him or not impeach him? And if you don't know, A, what the other side is telling you, and you don't know where they're wrong, where they're right, and what's really going on, you can't defend the president. You can't defend the Constitution. You can't defend the DNC if you want to defend the DNC. You have to know what's really going on. Uh, tonight... We have a few more clips uh, from this interview, and Chalupa plays a big role. She's the one that the press is just saying, no, she wasn't working for the DNC. Um, That's not true, and she was just doing this on her own time. Really? Because this guy uh, says that she was introduced to him at the Ukrainian embassy as a DNC operative. And he actually lost his gig at the uh, Ukrainian embassy because he wouldn't go along with it. He's like, no, this is wrong. This is wrong for us and wrong for them as well. This is dirty. Not going to do it. And he says the ambassador said, you don't understand. This will be good for us uh, after this next election because Hillary will be in and we'll get all kinds of special favors. We're just growing our relationship closer. And he refused to do it. He started speaking out and nobody would listen to him in 2016. Now I'm fascinated to hear what he had to say. 
Did you have any red flags go off? This is the first time we've talked to him. You have any red flags go off in your head, Jason? Everything, like you, like you said just now, everything syncs up with what we've got, what, what people like Sol- John Solomon has uncovered. This guy's credible. I mean, it's a fact that he was employed at these places. That's yeah. fact. That's and, and, fact. And pretty high ranking. I yeah. mean, he was the assistant to the prosecutor general. Yep. Uh, two of them, in fact. He was also, I think, assistant to the prime minister of Ukraine. Uh, and, and, and then also high ranking in the embassy. He's not a nobody. He's not a janitor. No, I mean, the rest of the media will not. He even says in this, in this interview that you did with him that he did an, an interview with another mainstream outlet, but they just didn't run it because it didn't go with their narrative. I mean, you can imagine if this was on the other side, like think about how many times they put Michael Avenatti on. Yeah. Not this guy. Right. You'll see him on The Blaze tonight, 5 o'clock. Make sure you subscribe now. BlazeTV.com slash Glenn. You'll enjoy finding out what outlet that is. In 30 minutes, I'm going to be taking your phone calls on any topics uh, if you want to talk about the whistleblower that we just uh, played audio of, an update on uh, what, what is happening with the impeachment and Ukraine and that story, we can talk about that. Also, love to hear from you on what you think is, is happening with the debate and politics and all that. It's open. You can just call 888-727-BECK. Get in line now. Talk to our screeners, and we will uh, do that just in about 30, 35 minutes from now. 888-727-BECK. Most people, I think, know him for his opera and opera singing. Uh, He also did some television, I hear. It's Mike Rowe. Uh, welcome to the program, Mike. How are you? Glad I'm swell, thanks, You're swell. but not swollen. Yeah, that's yeah. good. Yeah, I, I'm a little puffy. I'm a little puffy. Are you? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Ran you into a beehive and uh, either that or just eat too much. <laughs> uh, you have a new book called The uh, The Way I Heard It, and um, and I want to talk to you about that. But first of all, just good to see you again. Good to hear from you. How, how's Likewise. life going? Life is good. You know, it's uh, it's a bit like falling down the stairs, making all kinds of progress, taking some bumps and bruises on the way. But uh, overall, I'd be a fool to complain. Yeah. How's your mom? She's great. Thank Good. you. She just Same. finished her second book. She's now officially insufferable, getting an agent, <laughs> you know, all of it. It's, it's all crazy. Micro in our New York Blaze uh, studios. Uh, This book is, you're actually living in many ways the life I would love to live, Mike. Uh, And that is paying homage to uh, Paul Harvey, who is a hero of mine. And I understand he was a hero of yours. The book's dedicated to him. It wouldn't have happened without him. And uh, I know we've talked about this before, but you know, I was I was trying to figure out the right intro for the book, and I was thinking about a true story that happened to me uh, back in the 80s where I, I was late for a flight, and I had driven to BWI Airport, and I knew I could make it to the gate. You know, this is before TSA went crazy and, and 9-11 and everything else. I had about 35 minutes, but I couldn't get out of the car because I was stuck to my seat. And I was stuck to my seat because Paul Harvey was in the mm-hmm. middle of the rest of the story. And I truly, I had to sit there until I heard the magic words, you know. And now you know the, the rest, rest of the story. story. Yeah. So the, the way I heard it is, um, is the same basic format. It, it started as, a, as an attempt to compress time on planes. So I, I wrote most of these on planes and in diners here and there. 
and uh, and that's that's how it started. It, it, it was a hobby that got a little out of hand, and and now. It's a book. So who does your research? You know, Paul Harvey, most people don't know this, but he would come in in Chicago. He would come in in the dark. He had to do about 20 minutes of broadcast, 25 minutes of broadcast a day. But he would come in early in the morning in the dark and he wouldn't leave uh, until at least six o'clock at night every day of his life. He, he, he struggled. For, yeah. Struggled for every word that he pounded out himself on the typewriter. No, it's extraordinary, but but it was the suit and tie part that killed me. You know, the guy's in radio, <laughs> and he he dressed like right. a news anchor, right? And he took, you know, he took his opinion and commentary really, really seriously. And and that kind of storytelling combined with that kind of a voice, um, look, I could never hope to fill his shoes, but following in his footsteps has really been an honor. And yeah. this this podcast has has found an audience and I'm you know I'm tickled to death by that and uh you know I don't I don't think I told you this before but not long after the podcast started I got a letter from his son Paul Harvey Jr who who wrote a lot of the rest of the story yeah. and I, I thought oh no you know he's listened to it there's going to be a cease and desist yeah, yeah. there's going to be an injunction <laughs> yeah he wrote and he told me that uh his father was no doubt looking down and giving two enthusiastic thumbs up, and he included a really generous check to my foundation. Mm-hmm. And uh, as compliments go, Glenn, you know I know you've been paid similar compliments, but that's that's about as high as the cotton gets. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm never going to be in the uh, Radio Hall of Fame because of Paul Harvey. Uh, I was hosting the national broadcast for the induction ceremony for Radio Hall of Fame. I've never told this story on the air. Stu's looking at me like, don't tell the story. I don't care anymore. Don't do it. Um, but uh, I was uh, I was asked to do the broadcast for the induction ceremony. It's a national, nationwide broadcast, and and uh, so I agreed to it. And the guy from the from the museum uh, uh, came up to me. With like four minutes to go, and he said, we're running early. You're going to need to fill for like three minutes. And I, he said, can you do it? And I said, uh, yeah. And then they went five, four, three. And I walked out, and I had to fill for three minutes. And in the time that he said, do you, can you fill, and me saying, yeah, I remember that Paul Harvey was in the front row. And oh boy! And I said, um, "Let me just say this on a personal note: um, It's a dream come true. I'm standing here on stage in Chicago in front of Mr. Paul Harvey, and sir, it is you that uh, introduced me to the magic of radio. It was you when I was eight years old. I heard your voice say, Chicago O'Hare, 288 dead, and I said I could smell the smoke of the plane. I could hear the sirens." And it's that that convinced me that the power of storytelling in radio is unlike any other. From Chicago, good night. Okay, that's how I did it. I walk off stage, and the guy comes up to me, and he says, you son of a bitch. And I said, what? He said, you will never be in the Hall of Fame, never for what you just did. And I said, what did I do? He said, you knew sitting at the table is the head guy who was the CEO of Eastern Airlines on that crash. And I said, how the hell would I even know that? And so this guy who was the CEO of that ad, that wound opened up. And all I'm trying to do is, A, fill and say something nice about Paul Harvey. So 
Thanks, Paul. <laughs> wow. That, yeah. that, that is a terrific story. Yeah. By way of comparison, I can only offer this. As I sat in the long-term parking at BWI yeah. in 1985, listening to Paul Harvey, I finally got to hear the magic words and the rest of the story, ran to the gate, and missed my flight by 90 seconds. Was it Eastern so, Airlines? <laughs> what is wrong with you, man? You uh, no, uh, it wasn't. It, it was, in fact, uh, United. And, uh, and, and the plane was still there, Glenn. I could see it, but they had closed the gate. And it was one of the first arguments I ever had in public that I, that I felt like I needed to apologize for mm. because I kind of lost it. They, yeah. they literally pointed to the plane and said, no, it's gone. And I, and I pointed to the plane and said, but I see it. And they said, no, it's gone. <laughs> no, it's, it's gone. gone. It's gone. Yeah. No, uh, it's so gone. The, the book, tell me, tell, tell me your favorite story in the book. Well, it started as a collection of 50 of these Harvey-esque tales. But what happened was I, we cut it down to 35 because my mother – having read it, said, look, these are all terrific, Michael. But, you know, it's a very lazy way to write a book, just putting stories together that you've already read on your podcast. And I said, well, thanks, Mother. What do you suggest? And she <laughs> said, well, how about a little connective tissue in between these, these uh, biographies? So I started trying to answer the question, why did I write about whoever it was I just mm-hmm. wrote about? And I tried to make that answer somehow rhyme with an event from my own misspent youth. And what, what came out was kind of an accidental memoir. So the book itself goes back and forth between autobiography and biography, mystery and memoir. So you get the rest of the story kind of thing tempered with my own take on why it is I think I might have written about a famous person who I've never met. Mike, how has your life changed since you you left a regular TV show? I mean, you had lots of money in the bank and you uh, didn't even I think you owned a toothbrush, but really nothing mm-hmm. else. You were always traveling. Have you settled down? What is what is your life like now? Well, I still have access to literally hundreds of dollars, Glenn. Um, <laughs> and uh, wow. And I and Good I still travel. I was on the road last year about 220 days. Um, the MicroWorks Foundation happily has exploded. We're 11 years old now. It's We've uh, given over $5 million in work ethic scholarships to kids who are willing to learn a skill and master a trade. As legacies go from dirty jobs, I'm, I'm awfully proud of that. Yeah. Uh, there's a show on Facebook called Returning the Favor that's a straight-up, unapologetic celebration of bloody do-gooderism that now has 400 million views. Proud of that. Um, somebody's got to do it, which followed dirty jobs, found a home for a couple of years inexplicably on CNN. And then against what I'm sure you'll agree are impossible broadcast odds wound up becoming the number one show on the Trinity broadcasting network. That's amazing. So that's that it's simply not possible. And now this podcast has 120 million downloads and it's become a book that I'm told is going to do well and so look I I'm I'm embarrassingly fortunate and uh, still busy still brushing my teeth and uh, still <laughs> earning more than I spend yeah, good 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 all right yeah. sounds great Thanks. Mike great talking to you thank you so much um, hey and I haven't ruined my career yet in the National Broadcasting Hall of Fame so there's still time for that too
Okay. All right. I'm play because you're one. an inspiration. <laughs> because you are an inspiration. Oh, that's right. I'm an inspiration. Okay. Uh, Mike, thank you so much. Mike Rowe, the hey, name Glenn, of, thanks a lot. You bet. The name of the book is The Way I Heard It by Mike Rowe. It's available everywhere today. Hey, a couple of things, uh, show notes. Uh, one, we're going to be doing a call-in show here in about 15 minutes. If you would like to be on uh, the uh, show, and just we're just going to have an open conversation. We'll talk about anything that you want to talk about, 888-727-BECK. You call in right now, and uh, we'll get you lined up to, uh, to uh, talk to me. I really would like to hear what you're thinking about, what your position is on on all kinds of things. So whatever you want to talk about, 888-727-BECK. Um, also, our Mercury One Ball is happening a week from this Saturday, October 26th. Tanya and I are hosting it. Uh, we have a silent auction, and I think that just went live. Um, do you know? Can we find that, the uh, silent auction? Uh, we have a silent auction, uh, all kinds of things up to bid on. This is all to raise money for Mercury One and this pays for the salaries and the phone calls and the flights and everything else that we have to do to be able to um, efficiently move uh, uh, these huge projects together. Because when we say, I'm going to raise X number of dollars for food and water for this hurricane, those dollars have to go for food and water for that hurricane, 100%. So we need to be able to have another fundraiser every year. And I, I like to do it by offering you something of value. Uh, so we have this great ball. Everybody is going to be there. And you can find out uh, more about it at uh, mercuryone.org slash m1ball. Uh, but also, um, we have a silent auction uh, going on right now. So if you can't make it, do you know the address of the silent auction? Uh, I think if you just go to mercuryone slash m1ball, it'll probably have that, um, it'll probably have that uh, in. But we're going to announce some things uh, at the uh, gala this year that I think is very, very exciting. Uh, and we'd love to have you there. You can buy a table. Uh, you can become a sponsor. You can make a donation, whatever you'd like to do. But I'd love to have you there. Mercuryone.org slash M1Ball. It's a week from Saturday. We do it once a year, and we'd love to have you there. Uh, let me get into um, uh, Beto and guns. Uh, here's what he said Here's what he said last night uh, about taking people's guns. Congressman, you just made it clear that you don't know how this is actually going to take weapons off the streets. If you can develop the plan further, I think we can have a debate about it. But we can't wait. People are dying in the streets right now. We can't wait for universal background checks that we finally have a shot to actually get through. We can't wait to ban the sale of new weapons and high-capacity magazines so we don't wind up with millions more of these things on the street. Okay, stop. We can't. So research shows on the left, research shows the fastest way to start a civil war is to take people's guns. Listen to what Buttigieg is saying here. Beto, you're not going far enough fast enough. We can't wait. We can't wait to pass this law. Passing this law is not so long. Changing the Constitution takes a long time. If they can't wait to pass a law which would then go through the courts and be found unconstitutional. But if they can't wait to do that, they certainly can't wait to follow the Constitution. And that is the point of our system, to slow people down from feeling emotional and doing something that takes away people's rights. 
and he was described as the moderate one. Incredible. Yeah, they had a nice little battle about that. And the fact that you have someone saying, well, we're not going to go door to door and confiscate the guns. It would be great. We can have a debate if you, if, you, if you develop the policy further. That's now the moderate position of the Democratic Party. It's just someone, he wants all the same policies, but he's saying he's not going to confiscate the guns. They're going to have a, uh, what was, it was a uh, volun- voluntary buyback system, yeah. which is, is fantastic. Uh, what happened in New Jersey? Didn't they do a, uh, didn't they do a voluntary buyback and a turn in of the bump stocks? Uh, bump stocks, yeah. yeah. How many did they get? Because I know they had a real problem in New Jersey. They had to buy that big storage facility. Yeah. yeah uh, they got um, zero. Zero. Zero people turned them in. But the full zero. Right. Mm-hmm. Every one of the zeros. Every one of them. Yeah. This is the Glenbeck Program.